So this week we're, um, we're looking at the fourth sign of Jesus's that's found in the Gospel of John. If you remember throughout this series, we have been looking first at the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. And then we moved on to the seven signs. So we've been, you know, this has been a, a, a big sermon series. It still is where we've been spending a lot of time in the Gospel of John. And so, yeah, this week, um, this is what's known as the fourth sign, perhaps one of Jesus's most famous uh, miracles, the feeding of, uh, of the 5,000. Um, it should probably really be called something like the feeding of the 10,000 or the 20,000, because if you notice in the text there, it mentions uh, 5,000 men. And of course, that's not counting all the, uh, the women and the children who would have undoubtedly be there. So actually, in some sense, the miracle's bigger than we're led to believe. Um, it's, like I say, probably more like 10, 20,000 people that were fed. Um, something unique about this, uh, this story is it's actually, it's the only miracle of Jesus's that's found in all four Gospels. Okay, so we have it in uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's really interesting to compare the different texts um, because they're, they're all telling the story, same story, but there's little nuances and differences in, in some of the texts that help fill out um, um, some of the things we might not find in John's account. Uh, and of course, this is true to life. If you had four people at the same event and each one was asked to write a description of the event, you would get four different accounts. The basic details would be the same, but then little things would be different. You know? So it's, it's kind of, I find that stuff cool because I think it just lends all the more credibility to the Gospels being true, real, actual events. So but let's jump in here. We're looking, obviously, at John's account of what happened. And we're told that Jesus had crossed to the far shore of Galilee. And actually, from Mark's parallel account, um, we learn uh, that Jesus was trying to get some R&R. He was trying to get some rest. He had been uh, working hard, healing a lot of people, doing a lot of teaching. And him and his disciples, they were trying to get, get away, get some rest. And listen to Mark's account here, what it says in chapter 6, verse 30 to 32. It says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So that's kind of where we're at. This is where the disciples are. This is what they're doing. And then Jesus, he sees, a, he sees a great crowd coming towards them. And, I, you know, I know if that was me, and I was beat, and I was tired, and I was looking for some time to myself, you know, my reaction would probably be like, oh, no, please, why, why now, why? You know, you've got all these people coming down, I know they're going to want things from me, and they're going to want healings, and, and you know, oh. but what would Jesus do? in that bumper sticker, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, we don't have to guess what Jesus would do because actually, again, Mark's account tells us what Jesus did. And it says here, Mark says, Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So here's Jesus exhausted. His disciples are beat as well. They're probably like, come on, Jesus, take a break. Everybody needs a break. You're going to burn out. And instead, what does Jesus do? He has compassion on them. 
He sees this crowd. He sees their need. He sees how desperate they are. And he begins teaching them many things. You know, when I was a kid growing up, um, it was really important for me to feel like my teacher actually cared about me. Um, and actually, when I think about it, that still, still matters to me now. I've had um, uh, teaching as an adult. Um, and it's always been important to me to feel like my teacher is more than somebody who's just transferring knowledge to me. You know, that, that doesn't do it for me. And, you know, I would, I would always work harder for teachers that I knew cared about me. If I knew they cared about me, I would work harder for them. And I'd, I'd actually, I'd feel guilty if I hadn't done the work, or maybe it was a piano teacher and I hadn't practiced well that week. I'd actually feel guilty. But I remember having a piano teacher for one year at music college. You could tell was just dialing it in. And I didn't practice. I didn't, I didn't work for them. But Jesus here, Jesus is that caring teacher who's genuinely interested in you. And with this crowd here, he's not just interested in teaching them, but he's thinking of their physical needs as well. So Jesus, he's addressing their spiritual needs. He's teaching them truth. But he's also practical. He's concerned with their physical needs. He's probably noticing how tired and worn out some of them look. Some of them probably look malnourished. And Jesus turns to Philip, one of his disciples, and he says in verse 5, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, one of the reasons Jesus was asking Philip this is because Philip was a local lad. He was from a nearby town, Bethsaida. So Philip would probably know if there was somewhere local where you could buy bread. Unlikely that you'd be able to buy bread for 5,000 plus people. I don't think he could even do that at Market Basket. But he turns to Philip and asks, where can we buy bread for these people? But you know, as I read that, I wonder, and of course this is me just speculating, but I wonder if there was a little twinkle in Jesus' eye. When he asked Philip that question. You know, a bit like, you got this massive crowd. And Jesus thinks, you know what, I'm going I'm to see what Philip's reaction is here. Philip, where do you think we can get food for these people? Let's, let's see how he reacts, you know. And, you know, maybe we're getting a little taste of, of Jesus' sense of humor there. Let's see how Philip reacts to this. And indeed, in verse 6, what are we told? John tells us that Jesus, he asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. So, you know, Jesus already knows what he's going to do. He knows that he's going to feed this crowd. And he doesn't really need Philip's help. But Jesus' question to Philip, even if there was a twinkle in his eye was actually a test of faith. That's what's going on here when Jesus asks Philip this question. That's what the test is when John says he asked this only to test him. It's a test of faith. Remember, Jesus had already had a reputation as a miracle worker. That's, that's why the crowds are following him. That's why all these people are crowding around him. And undoubtedly, Philip as one of Jesus' 12 disciples, would have seen these miracles that Jesus had done. 
He'd have been a witness to many of those miracles. So Jesus wants to see where Philip's faith is at. Where's your faith at, Philip? Where's your faith? Do do you believe in me? Do you trust that I am able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine? That's what Jesus is really asking Philip here. And you know, sometimes God will do that with us too. I mean, think about it. If he did it with his disciples, we should expect no less because we too are Jesus' disciples. So here's one of the first things we can learn this morning. It's this. God will sometimes present us with what looks like an impossible situation to see where our faiths are. You ever experienced that in your life? You're in a, what seems like an impossible situation. Well, you know, I, there's no way this could happen. How am I going to get out of this? Well, sometimes that can be God saying, okay, let's see, how, how are you going to deal with this? How are you going to react to this? Where's your faith at? And, you know, James in his letter, he talks about this right at the beginning of his epistle. In James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, James writes this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So do you see what James is is telling us there? He's telling us that the testing of our faith is essential to becoming a mature believer. The testing of our faith, it's essential to becoming a mature believer. If your faith is never tested, how do you know what it's really made of? It's just theoretical, right? And so here with Philip, Jesus is testing his faith because he knows it's part of how Philip will grow in his faith. Now, (laughs) unfortunately for Philip... He fails the test rather miserably. (laughs) And what we're going to see over the next couple of verses is three people. The narrative focuses in on three people, and it's Philip, Andrew, and the boy with the loaves and the fishes. All right? Philip, Andrew, and the boy. Of course, Philip and Andrew are two of Jesus' 12 disciples. And I'm going to call them these names. I'm going to give them these labels. I'm going to call them the atheist, the agnostic, and the seeker. Okay, the atheist, the agnostic, and the seeker. Stay with me. Because what you're going to see here with each of these people is you're going to see incremental steps of faith. So let's look at Philip first. Jesus asked him, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And now we know that this is a test. So how does Philip react? Well, we get, his, we get his reply in verse 7. It says, Philip answered him, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. So basically, Jesus has said, Phil, come here. You're a local lad. You're from around here. Where can we get bread to feed these folks? Let's see how he reacts. And Philip's like, are you crazy? So take... Just, you know, almost a year's wages. And that would only pay for people to have a bite, not even like a full meal. 
That would just be a bite. Philip's the skeptic. He's the atheist here. He doesn't believe there's any way to feed the crowd. And he doesn't have faith that Jesus can do it. Now, obviously, Philip believes in God. He's not a true atheist in the sense that we normally think of atheists, right? He was most likely a devout Jew. But functionally, here, he is living as an atheist. There's no belief. There's no faith. He's living in pessimism. The glass is half empty. Well, what about Andrew? What about Andrew? Verses 8 to 9, it says, Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? So you see here, there's a little more faith than Philip. There's a little more faith than Philip. Andrew probably is, he's been looking around the crowd as Jesus asked this question. And he's thinking, okay, what can we do? Is there a way we might be able to feed all these people? How, you know, how could we do this? And then he spots a boy with five barley loaves and two fishes. And he says, well, you know, he's thinking, well, maybe, just maybe there's a... And then just as his faith starts to rise, it's punctured by rationality and logic, which says, look at how many people there are. And look at how much food there is. There's no way. You can feed this many people. Andrew's the agnostic. He's the fence sitter, as I like to call agnostics. Because just like an agnostic who says, well, God might exist. I can't rule it out. But he probably doesn't. Well, right here, Andrew is saying, maybe we can feed these people. But probably not. He's the agnostic. There's a flicker of faith, but Andrew lets what he sees in front of him in the so-called real world, the, the natural realm, he lets that dictate his faith. And so many of us do the same, don't we? We let this and what we see be the grounds for our faith. But as Christians, that's not what Scripture tells us at all. It tells us that what we see here in the natural realm, in the physical world, is just the tip of the iceberg. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. Paul writes, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So what we think is the summation of reality is in fact just a tiny percentage of what is truly real. This, all this, all this is temporary. What we cannot see, that's eternal. Hebrews 11, chapter 1, very famous statement on faith says this, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Do you see that? Having assurance about what we do not see. And here Andrew sees the loaves and the fishes 
And he sees the size of the crowd and allows his faith to be crippled by his circumstances. So what about the boy? Well, we don't know what he thinks because John doesn't record anything that the boy said. But we do know this. He was a seeker. He was seeking Jesus just like everybody else in the crowd. And what did he do? He gave Jesus what he had. He gave Jesus what he had. He didn't know what Jesus was, was going to do with the five small barley loaves and the two small fish. He didn't know what Jesus was going to do, but he gave them to Jesus anyway. I mean, what would have happened if he'd refused to give them to Jesus? He would have been like, no, it's mine. It's my lunch. But he didn't, did he? He gave What he had to Jesus. He had faith enough that Jesus could do something with what he had. And as small as it was. Because notice something here. Notice how the boy's food is described as five small barley loaves. And two small fish. You know, barley loaves were, they were were the cheap bread of the poorer classes. And they were small. And the fishes are small. It was, it was probably a couple of pickled sardines. And this boy, the seeker, he doesn't have much. But what he does have, he gives it to Jesus. And it's all Jesus needs to do a mighty work. So Philip the atheist, Andrew the agnostic, the boy the seeker. Of course, there's, there's one more person of significance in this narrative, of course, of the most significance, and that's, that's Jesus. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God incarnate in the flesh who is neither limited or restricted by the natural and physical laws of our world. You see, everyone gathered there the crowd, the disciples, the boy. Jesus is the only one who can see the unseen. Who can see all of reality rather than the tip of the iceberg that we live in. And when Jesus takes control of a situation, all of a sudden our human resources are irrelevant. God doesn't need them to work mightily. He chooses often to work with us. But all our human resources, nothing compared to God. In the natural, we we look at our circumstances and we say, this is impossible. If you had been there that day among that crowd and you'd seen the five loaves and the two fishes, you'd have been like, that's impossible. That's never, ever going to be able to feed us all. Our human reasoning would say, you would need a catering company to feed this many people. But when you have Jesus in your life, what does Jesus tell us? Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, Jesus says, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. All things. Not some things, a few things, once in a while things. All things are possible with God. And of course, we know what happens next. Jesus takes the five small barley loaves and the two small fish. He gives thanks and he has the food given out to the people. 
And not only do they have enough food to feed everyone, they have an abundance of leftovers. They have more leftover than, when, than what they started with. Verses 12 to 13 says, when they had all had enough to eat, so when everybody had had their fill, probably had seconds and thirds and everybody's had their fill, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. God's a God of, of abundance. He gives us over and beyond what we need or what we deserve. Why? Because he delights to give good gifts to his children. And notice Jesus says, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. We have a God who doesn't waste anything. Let nothing be wasted. And you know, just because there is an overabundance, like the words of the leftovers, that does not mean that we should be wasteful. You know, we, we live in a country, in a society, that is rife with overabundance, right? And ironically, we're still not happy. We've got far above what we need be food, accommodation, everything. We have so much more than so, so many other parts of the world. And yet, we can be so wasteful. <laughs> you know, when I, when I first moved to the U.S., um, it was a bigger culture shock than I expected. I really thought it was just going to be like living in England, but, you know, people with American accents. And I thought that would be it, you know. How naive I was. It, it was probably a good year to 18 months it took me to adjust to American culture and American just way of life. But I remember some of the first things that struck me was the, uh, the serving size of, 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 of food. It just seems huge. It was gigantic. It was a massive mound of food in front of you when you go to a restaurant. And I was like, wow, you know, this is oh, huge. You know, it's like, I mean, I've adjusted to it now. So... I go back to the UK, I'm like, that's kind of stingy. <laughs> but that, my first year in the US, I put on 40 pounds. <laughs> but I noticed that the serving sizes were huge, and so much would go to waste. And the other things I noticed that I think uh, many Americans are obsessed with are napkins. <laughs> Massive mound of napkins. Oh, I'm going to need all these. You know, it's like this huge wedge of napkins and ice. What is it with ice in your drinks, guys? I mean, it's like you will fill a whole cup up with ice and you get like a tiny amount of liquid in there. You know, the UK, it's like you get two ice cubes. That's it. Two ice cubes, one napkin. That's all you need. But here, this is napkins, ice. And so much of it is thrown away. So much of it is wasted, right? And hey, we're just as wasteful in the UK, so I'm not trying to uh, pin this all on America. The amount of food that restaurants and grocery stores throw out on a daily basis. You know. God's not a, he's not a God of waste. Jesus says it right there. Let nothing be wasted. And you know, it's a good place to ask, ask yourself some questions. What are some areas in, in our own lives? What's an area in your life where you could be less wasteful? 
And you know what? Yeah, this could be a physical resource like food or, or, or anything else or clothes or whatever. But, you know, it can also be things like time. Are you, are you using your time well or are, do you waste a lot of your time? It can be emotional energy. Are you wasting emotional energy fixating on something or a situation that is out of your control? Are you, are you running scenarios and, and, and situations through your mind that just get you angry and anxious? Don't waste it. Give it to God. Like the boy with the loaves and the fishes. Verse 14 says, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is come into the world. And Jesus said, Yes, I am, but don't call me Shirley. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> Verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they <laughs> intended to... I can't even read it now. <laughs> Verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So Jesus knows that the people are misunderstanding who he is and what his purpose is. They see things only from the natural and the physical realm and they presume that Jesus is the long-awaited king. He will free them from the Romans and from all oppression. But again, what is unseen is what is far more real And the real work and the victory that Jesus has come for is not to get rid of the Romans. It's not to bring independence to the Jewish people again. No, he has come to claim victory over sin and death and thrones and powers and rulers and authorities. Jesus has come to claim what is rightfully his. But the people don't see that because they're living on the tip of the iceberg. All right, so I want to get back to these three characters. Philip, the atheist, Andrew, the agnostic, the boy, the seeker. And I want to ask you, which character are you? Which character are you? Which one do you identify with most? I know we all want to be the boy. But let's be honest. Let's be honest. Who, who, you know, if you look deep down, you're like, all right, which one am I really? Are you Philip? You're a believer, you're a Christian, uh, maybe even go to church every week. Say you believe in the Bible and the, the power of God. And yet, are you living your life as a functional atheist? Is your life more defined by unbelief rather than faith? Is your typical reaction when you have problems in your life to only see it from a naturalistic perspective and presume your situation is hopeless? Do you walk more in faith or do you walk more in unbelief? So a lot of us are like that, you know. We, we, we call ourselves Christians and I do believe that people genuinely, they, they believe in, in Christ and all that. But functionally, we're living as if it's not true. Functionally, we live as if we don't have a God of miracles A God who's able to do all things. And we live our lives that way. That would be Philip. Or are you Andrew? 
You get moments of faith where it wells up inside you. And for a moment, you're like, but then you let all the air out of it by reasoning and rationalizing it away. What was I thinking? I need to look at the reality of the situation. I I mean, I know technically God could work a miracle, but get real. It doesn't happen anymore. Remember, what you think is real is just the tip of the iceberg. Or are you the boy? Are you the boy? Are you the seeker? You're hungry for Jesus. And what little you have, you give to Jesus so that God can use it in powerful ways. So he can use you in powerful ways. Which one are you? Are you Philip? Are you Andrew? Are you the boy? Well, here's the thing. Even if you, if you identify as Philip or Andrew, don't be discouraged. They were part of the 12. They were part of the 12 disciples, hand-picked by Jesus. And Jesus meets them where they're at. They're all at different stages and levels of their faith journey. And Jesus meets them where they're at. He, Jesus meets us where we're at. Do you know that? And if you follow him, like the 12 did, Jesus will mold you into a mighty person of faith whom God can use powerfully. He doesn't require much. But he does require it all. So as we wrap up, just what are, what are some important takeaways uh, that we can uh, glean from today? Well, firstly, remember, God will test our faith because it's how we mature in our faith. Don't be discouraged when you have testing and trials in your life. Look at it from the unseen perspective. Lord, what's this about? Not to say every trial and test in your life will be a test of faith. But God can and does allow that to happen. Number two, what we can see, the visible, the physical, is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what is real. And thirdly, Jesus meets us where we're at. And what little we have God can use for powerful purposes if we are willing to surrender and give our all to him. Let's pray.